nice to see everybody today, alive and awake and excited. So, uh, so one of the profound questions that we had last week in our class was we were talking about how the, the, uh, that God had told Abraham that uh, every male eight days old and older needed to be uh, circumcised. So I've been thinking about circumcision this week. You know, it's just kind of been on my mind. Um, but anyway, the question was, why eight days? What is, was there something significant about eight days other than it could have been, you know, two days or it could have been 15 days, but why eight days? And so anyway, our medical authority here in the class, Sharon, can, she told me afterwards, I thought, oh man, you have to share that with us. So why eight days? So on the eighth day, babies begin to produce their own vitamin K, and vitamin K helps stop bleeding, so babies are less likely to bleed or hemorrhage if they're cut yeah. after the eighth day. Yeah. So isn't that interesting? Yeah. So that's good. So then on the ninth day, do you have more of it than you had on the eighth day? And then on the 15th day, you had even more? So that would be a that would be a case for that. Yeah. That's, well, thank you for sharing that. She shared that with me after class last week, and I thought, well, number one, I won't remember it, and but number two, that was that's a great way to to start this morning. The other thing I was thinking about, you know, with the sermon this morning, because um, I was pondering, what is the Lutheran version of that uh, story? that uh, Jesus was talking to the, you know, the guy that invited people to the party and everybody wanted to get real close to the famous guy. And I thought, you know, in Lutheran congregations, it's just the opposite. People want to get away from the, the, uh, the uh, preacher as far as they can. And so the, the places of honor and the places that people are contending for really are at the back of the church instead of at the front of the church. So I was thinking, you know, Lutherans sort of have it we have it twisted around just a little bit. Um, and then the other thing that happens in Lutheran churches, which may happen in other churches too, but that's my world as Lutheran, is, uh, is how people take ownership of their pew. Have you noticed this? <laughs> have you noticed this? It's, you know, it's, it's sort of like, this is not the place I sit. This is my pew. And of course, it is my section of my pew. And it's almost as if they cannot relate to Jesus any other way other than sitting right there in that spot, about halfway down on the left-hand side as I'm facing near the aisle. It's so amazing how people... We do it for your benefit. Because you wouldn't know we're there. Well, I do have to admit that I look now. I look in those spaces and I think, gosh, where are they? What, what's going on with them? Must be some problem in life. And then, you know, when I walk down the middle, I go, oh, there they are. Yeah, messing with me. Yeah. So it's just one of those things. And so um, one of the ways that that plays out, even in smaller churches, especially in smaller churches, is that when I go visit a church, I'm the last one to sit down. Can you guess why? Because I don't want to sit in Grandma Schmidt's pew that she's been sitting in. And that parable would come to life right then at that moment. Is that I would sit there, and then she would walk up down the aisle, and she would just stand there. <laughs> and it would be just like that parable. But it wouldn't be like, you know, place of honor versus not. It's just, why are you sitting in my spot? And so then 
I would be so embarrassed. So to save myself from embarrassment and shame of a lifetime, I just, uh, I just wait. What? Oh, in here too. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Now we have a few people that move around, but you can tell there's some discomfort there with that. Right? They come in the door and they're looking around. They go, oh man, somebody's sitting in my pew. And so then they got to move over there. And I know some people say, I'm not even showing up for that. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the way that works. See, parables come to life. Yes, sir. I honor God by my presence. Mm-hmm. Not by where I sit. Although you sit in the same place every Sunday. <laughs> yeah. I sit in the very back. Right. I know. I know. I do what is practical. I know. Yes. But, you know, I, I can tell when you're there. Because you're right there staring at me. So that's how I know. It's just perfect. Yeah. But so I know you're watching me and I'm watching you too. <laughs> Have you noticed though that they're like, because of where my chair is and where the lectern is, that is a big chunk of furniture that gets in the way of my being able to see some people. Right? So like when we have new members come up, you know, they're standing there and at the, at the thing, and I'm going like this and like this, partly because I just want to see, I like to see people's faces, but also because secretly I like to spy on people. And so, you know, I know that there are some people that sit purposefully where they know that I cannot see them. So, yeah, it's just, this is, uh, this is, uh, I know, I'm, I'm taking the shine off of church life here, aren't I, really? Yeah, you, you thought it was all holy and, and just and those things. Okay, well, let's get into our lesson for today. We are in uh, uh, the end of uh, chapter 17 of Genesis, and we'll move into, uh, into chapter 18. And so this is kind of a, a very gospel-y section of, uh, of Genesis and what's interesting about this, when you look at the bigger picture of how the stories are all put together, is that this part is focusing in on what God is about to do in a redemptive way. So all along, he's been saying to, uh, at that time, Abram and Sarai, who are now named Abraham and Sarah, uh, is that you're going to have a son, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a son. And that son is going to be the heir of the covenant and then that covenant is going to go out to all of those who are believers who are part of that covenant from that point on, from that point forward. Well, but each year that passed, no son. Each year that passed, it was like, you know, uh, in an exponential way, as they would age, then what would go with it was the, not just the uh, ability to have children, but even the, even the desire in some sense. I mean, just, you know, they were aging out of, uh, of that reality. But here's the good news, is that God doesn't think about that. God says, I'm making a promise, I'm going to make it happen, and what I want you to do is trust in me, and then I want you to wait. And he does that, I think, because he knows that we're not good at either one of those. Trusting does not necessarily come natural for us. Now, we can trust easier if we can see the thing happening. 
or even better, if we can see the end happening, then we can trust our way through the difficulties of the thing that leads to that. It's sort of like the same theory behind, um, if you have ever watched a movie before, and then you watch it again, how do you feel about the scary parts of the movie in the middle of it when you already know how it's going to end? You can bear what? The torture of watching the movie in the middle because you go, oh, 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 this is making me so nervous. I'm so afraid, but I already know how it's going to end, right? It's the same thing with reading a book. I know we've had this confession in this class before. How many of you, when you pick up a novel, you go to the back of the book and read that first? Oh, you are liar, liar, pants on fire. Man. I can't believe I am the only one here that does that sort of thing. I just can't believe it. Yeah. You do it once in a while, and then you have pangs of conscience after that, and you say, never again, never again. Yeah, sure. Well, it would be like that if you could imagine someone possibly doing that, okay? And so that's the hard thing about faith. That's the hard thing about faith, isn't it? Is that he says, trust in me. I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am good for what I say I'm good for. And you can trust that. And we go, okay. And then we try to figure out ways to up the odds in our favor. Isn't that what Abraham did? Yeah. He said, you know what? This is like taking way too long. And I don't know if I got it in me to, you know, father a child. So I will make this deal with, uh, with Hagar, my slave, my Egyptian slave, and, we, and, and we'll have a child, and then that child will be the heir, and that will be the answer to this dilemma of God making a promise, and probably that's how God wanted me to do it anyway. Right? You ever done that with God? Sort of put things in your own sort of way, and then said, and this was God's will. You ever done that? Like apply the word God's will to what you wanted to do in the first place? I know, I'm the only one that does that. So, You guys are so chicken, you won't even raise your hands. Okay, so let's see what happens. Verse 18 and 19 and following. Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So again, that's a reference to what we talked about last week is that God has made this promise, and he's saying, I'm going I'm to give you a son, and that that son will be the heir of the covenant. And, and Abraham, who has great affection for Ishmael, because that is his son, right? He says, oh, I hope that it's Ishmael. hope it's Ishmael. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you, and I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And when he had finished speaking with Abraham... God, God went up uh, from him. So there is a special blessing reserved for Ishmael. It's not like Isaac gets everything and Ishmael gets nothing. Okay, sometimes we, 
we sort of forget that, that, that there was a blessing here that was intended for Ishmael as well. But to be the, the, uh, the father of, if you will, or the, the, the inheritor of the covenant through whom eventually the Savior would come, God said yes to Isaac, no to Ishmael. Okay, here's a good question for you. Is God being fair? Hmm. Yes? You say yes? How's that fair? How's that fair? If He's being fair, how's that being fair? He still made his blessing. He still put blessings on, on Ishmael. Still put blessings. So that's fair. Richard? It was God's plan. Yeah. He doesn't have to be fair. He's God. Right? If you're God, you can say, this is how I'm going to do it. I choose that, and I don't choose that. And we look at that humanly, and we go, oh, wait a minute, that's not right. Well, and that's the thing. Can you honestly say that he did, he's not fair? Can I what? No, I'm asking you that question. You're not, you're, you're not, you're not asking me that question. That's not fair. Don't be asking me questions. <laughs> yeah, what do you say more? We can't say God's not fair. Right. That's us human looking at what you do. That's right. It's not affecting us what we call fair. That's right. But it's still fair. Yeah. Cannot say God's not. Yeah, there's, yeah, there, no, no, you're, I, I'm with you right there. We're together on that because we want to keep imposing our sort of view of things and our idea of things on God and say, well, then he ought to be doing it my way. But now, okay, if that's right, then how fair is it that Jesus dies for the sins of everybody and then we get forgiven because of what he does? as opposed to maybe we should make that fair, and maybe each one of us should have to bear the punishment of God's wrath for what we've done, because after all, that would be fair. Do you really want that kind of fairness? No, we want selective fairness. That's what we want, right? And God says, no, 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 I'm not going to do it that way. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to put on Jesus every bad thing you ever did and will do. In fact, I think I'll put on Jesus every bad thing in the history of the world from Adam and Eve all the way to the end of the world. I'm going to put all of that on Jesus. And then I know what I'll do. I'll make him suffer and die. And then I will raise him from the dead on the third day. And when I do that, that's going to take care of all of the need that everybody has for forgiveness. Yikes. I'm thinking Jesus is on the cross going, this is not fair. It's not. But God's idea of what brings life to us is not about making things even, right? And that's why when we say God is God, it isn't like, oh, yeah, he's like this ogre up in heaven trolling people. It's not that. It's that what he is, is he recognizes the core, the core dilemma for us is that we're sinful. And that sin separates us from him. And so unless he does something about it, we can't do it for ourselves. So he does it. Not fair, right? But that's the nature of grace. Yes? Uh, I don't know if this is a Lutheran thing or not. You know if it's a Lutheran thing? But growing up, when I was talking to kids, my brothers and I ever said, it's not fair. Your brothers? My dad, and you... and I, my dad was always like, life is not fair. You know, you know, he'd say, you know, God's got, God's got a plan. It's not really going to be things that we Yeah. And, and I think I see a little bit of a lot of 
Yeah, a lot of the push today for equity kinds of stuff is the recognition that life in this world has not been fair. I mean, there's a lot of unfairness, too. We, want, we actually want to recognize that. Um, but don't you love it when someone says to you, life isn't fair, get over it? Don't you just love that moment when they do that? Yeah, it's, so, it's just a warming kind of moment with people. Yeah, it's, it, it's the same. It's right in the same vein as saying to somebody, just stop it. Just stop doing it. Right. It's the same thing. All right. OK. Any other thoughts on this part here? So we got we got the covenant going to uh, down Isaac's line and we have the not covenant going down to uh, uh, down to Ishmael's line. But they both are still being blessed. OK, so one is not better than the other one in that sense. OK, well, let's keep going. Verse 23. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money. Every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now, Ishmael could easily have said, what a rip. I mean, literally, too, I guess. But, <laughs> but when you think about it, He's having to go through the pain that everybody else is, and yet what? He's not in the covenant. Now, he's blessed, and he would not have known that at that point, but certainly uh, God knew that. And that would the, the truth of that or the reality of that would later be revealed to him is kind of how we would think about that. All right? But why 13? We talked about this last week. What's the significance of... This happening for Ishmael at 13, at the same time that God and the angels are going to come to Abraham and say, next year, Sarah has a son. What's the significance of that? Remember? It was only seven days ago, so surely you remember what we talked about. Do what? That's right. So see, that at 13, which was kind of the age of accountability in their sense, or the age of coming to age sort of idea, when you would take on the responsibility, if as a 13-year-old male, you would take on, start taking on the responsibilities of, of, of the house, you know, of, of taking over from your dad. And so because that would happen at 13, that's when Abraham would have been um, culturally obligated to announce to everyone, including putting some sort of tattoo on him or what, however they did it, that would say he's the heir. And so God knows this, and he says, I don't want you to go down that route because Ishmael's not the heir. He's an heir, but he's not the covenant, the heir of the covenant. Uh, Isaac is going to be that, okay? So it's kind of interesting that when you think in terms of God's timing, that it also fit into the way that they did things in those days. And it wasn't like God said, you're not going to do it that way. You're just going to do it the way I want you to do it. But you're respecting the, uh, the way that the culture or the society of that day did it. Okay, so Abraham's 99, 
and Ishmael is 13, and it's become very clear now that there is a, a separation in, in the family. Okay, with me so far? Yes, Dan. Muslims say that they can trace their religion back to Ishmael. Say, say that again? Muslims say they can trace their religion back to Ishmael. Is that a, because uh, I don't know that much, is, is that a religious tracing back, or is that a racial going back to the Arabs? Is it? Did anybody know to confirm that? I had always heard that he was the father. Did we know anything about the 12 rumors of the great nation? Well, it was, the, the uh, commentaries that I looked at said that he would have 12 sons at least, and that each of them would then become great rulers of in their own right. I had always heard too that they Arabs. Yeah, so I'd already, I had always placed it in the Arab sort of world rather than in the Islamic world, even though the two converged quite heavily with each other. But it, you know that, anybody know that for sure? Okay, somebody's going to have homework for next week. Sharon's already done her part, so I don't know, somebody else will have to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is, I mean, on one side, you know, that is the Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, the blessing is different. It's so it is. Yeah. It is different. Sometimes a walk of faith requires me to live with that. And that's hard to do, isn't it? We couldn't hear Oh, we're just having a conversation here. <laughs> It wasn't meant for any of the rest of you. <laughs> well, what, what we're talking about is, you know, the blessing that Ishmael got versus what Isaac got. It wasn't the same, all right? In fact, the blessing of the covenant, including the idea of eventually becoming God's chosen, and that'll become a theme way later in terms of what they do with that, because... Um, it it it's woven into the understanding of the par, of the parable for today, you know, sitting at the best table and all that kind of stuff. That if you look at your chosenness as a blessing of stature, then where that leads you to is I'm better than you, or I'm not better than you. But by golly, it be my goal in life to make sure that I am the king of the castle, and everyone else is a dirty. Rascal, right? Perfect. See, I remembered. Yeah. The yeah, I. So what she's saying is that, uh, I don't think I could say it as good as you did, um, is that God made this promise to, to Abraham, and he said, like, trust in me, don't take matters into your own hands. So that Abraham goes, oh, I'm tired of waiting. So he moves out from under the promise. The promise is over here. He moves out from under the promise, and he takes things into his own hands. And there is a consequence of that, consequence being, but it wasn't accidental, I mean, this was on purpose, but the consequence was a child is born who is not of the promise, but still is blessed 
by virtue of the fact that they share the same father and the same household, okay? So I think that if I'm getting uh, your, your point, Beth, is that when we do that, there are consequences that we have to deal with. Um, yes, it was not Ishmael's fault. It was Abraham's fault. So Abraham gets to live with the truth of that for the rest of his life. And when it becomes a, when, when God makes it plain to him that Isaac will be the one receiving the blessing of the covenant and everything that goes with that, including being the chosen family kind of idea, um, I'm wondering if that would have had some parental impact on Abraham. You know, the Bible doesn't say that. But you sort of get that sense about it. And, and there is a little bit of uh, grief here on Abraham's part that he would have said, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. It's like some regret there that, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, Joseph. Ishmael still being someone included in this, not fully, is alluding to how God wants everyone included in the blessing and how later uh, salvation extends in the Gentiles after Jesus' Yeah, I mean, that because so much in the Old Testament points to stuff in the New Testament. So the inclusiveness of it, okay. Um, but it, time and time again, I think it kind of, kind of comes back to what people do with it, right? So if Ishmael goes through life and he's pretty bitter about this, and he's thinking, well, how come I'm not the, you know, covenant person? And then it doesn't help if Isaac is rubbing his nose in it the whole time, saying, well, I'm chosen. I'm dad's favorite. That's never happened before. And so you, you can sort of get that sense, can't you, that sometimes that, that exclusivity, exclusivity that sometimes we have as Christians makes us think, doesn't make us think, it, we go there with it. That instead of being in a humble, great, grateful place, like like I didn't even deserve this, and how am I in the kingdom, right? But we we forget that, and we turn it into a status thing, and ha ha ha, you know, I'm blessed and you're not. I mean, it's so easy humanly to do that, isn't it? And when we do it, then what we're doing is treating others in a less than sort of way, and we think, well, yeah, because we're in and you're out, okay? And I think to some degree that plagued Israel all through its history. We are the chosen ones. We are the chosen ones. And even in the early church, um, even after Jesus went to heaven, there still was that idea that, um, you know, we're God's chosen and, and you're not. And yeah, you can come in, but yeah, but go sit over there, not on the back row. See, I mean, that was, because we know who the back row is reserved for. We do, yeah. Um, yeah, Dennis. Ishmael left the camp. Yes. He went into Sinai and he married an Egyptian woman. That's correct. And his descendants facilitated getting Joseph down to Israel. Right. So the story goes on, does it not? And there, the Bible does that in a really great way that what looks like a kind of a little innocent thing at one point becomes a pivotal thing later on and a connector to the great story in terms of then how uh, everybody ends up in Egypt and then how everybody ends up in the promised land. So, so when, you look at the, when you look at the narrative from the big picture in the Old Testament, 
there's a fascinating tie-in that God does. God does not forget His people, but heaven forbid we are constantly forgetting Him, right? And yet God in His love and patience says, okay, well, let's go to verse 1 of chapter 18 at the bottom. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent or to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you all may wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. Now, did Abraham know that it was God at that point? What's the clue that suggests that he did not know? He says, my Lord, right? But notice how it's spelled in the translation here. Lowercase. So that would have been a, a, a salutation of respect, right? Some strangers have come. I'm going to observe the obligations of hospitality. Um, you know, here they are. But it's kind of what's kind of interesting in the story. Of course, it says in the very first verse, the Lord appeared. See how that's cap- how that's capitalized. So in the Hebrew, when you see that, then the Hebrew is Yahweh, the name of God. Yeah, Bob. Isn't that interesting? That's right. They didn't know because God had not revealed Himself as I am until that story with the burning bush with Moses. Yeah, correct. So Moses is looking back and he's saying, this is who this was. But in, the, in that moment, Abraham did not know who it was. But he's being very, very uh, hospitable. Okay. But the other interesting thing about this is, presumably, Abraham would have positioned his camp uh, maybe in a way that he could see who's coming to know who, if it's a friend or a foe. And it's interesting that uh, verse 2 says, he looked up and he saw three men standing there. It's like, boom, there they are. So it did not occur to him just yet that this was going to be an extraordinary visit. But it's one of those things, have you ever had this happen? Like, Blake, have you ever had this happen where you, you are struck by something out of the ordinary, and then you deal with it, and then a week later you go, oh, what was that? Have you ever done that before? I know you have. Yeah, sure. It's like that, isn't it? It's like in the moment where it doesn't hit us, but then later on we look back and we go, oh my gosh, there was like an amazing thing just happened. Well, let's see what happens. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said. Get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf. He cut out the brisket, by the way, and gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. 
there in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, what clues do we get from the narrative at this point? Where it might, might occur to Abraham that this is no ordinary strangers stopping by. How do you know about Sarah? There you go. That one. Okay, that would be one. All right. And then what else? They speak of a birth. Well, it's not like, you know, when people stop by your house, I mean, is this the kind of conversation that you have with people? It doesn't quite go that way, does it? Right? So it starts to dawn on Abraham that this is something that is way out of the ordinary, even though God had been promising him all along. It's just that in that moment, I'm not sure that he would have connected the dots. And so that's one of the reasons why God keeps reminding them all through their lives of what his promise is, because he knows us as human beings, is that if he doesn't keep reminding us of his goodness and the stuff he does for us, we're going to let it slip to the back burner because life gets in the way, doesn't it? Stuff that we think is important, and it probably is, starts to fill up the bandwidth in our brain, and after a while, we don't even remember what it was that God said. And so there is some, maybe a little bit of encouragement here, that we want to be sure that we're filling our lives with the Word of God and that that is primo compared to all the other stuff that we fill our minds with these days, and there are a ton of them, right? You know, I, I, I've challenged, I challenge myself this, but I've, I've, I may be challenging you in some sense of that, is what would happen if you sat down and itemized how much time you spend receiving the voices of the world versus the time that you spend receiving the voice of God in his word. Like if you itemized it, like if you put it on your calendar, at the end of the day, you'd go back and you say, okay, let's see, I was listening to the news and then I was doing my emails and then I was uh, listening to the, the uh, social media stuff. And at the end of the day, you go, yeah, I'm sure glad I spent that two minutes with Jesus in, uh, in devotional life or in the, in the Word of God. Or even worse, I'm sure glad that I spent that two hours on Sunday morning compared to the rest of the week. Okay? It's just, it's, it's something that we need to be mindful of. Because there are a ton of voices in the world all of which are clamoring for our attention and what's embedded in those voices much of the time is life isn't fair you can make it fair but it's up to you not god and so what is it that's going to counter that other than god and his grace and the word that he gives to us scripturally and with each other okay so a little challenge there maybe you might want to take yourself up on that I won't require uh, you to turn in any homework in this class, <laughs> and there'll be no judgment whatsoever because I'm guilty of the same thing that you guys are. All right, let's go to verse 10. So Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. That is so 
I can't believe that she was doing that. Right? I mean, shouldn't she have been doing the dishes or something like that? I mean, what, what, what is this? What is this? Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? So see, she cannot get her brain wrapped around this. The, the enormity and, and just the absurdity of believing in God's promise, she, I mean, she couldn't like help herself, right? Did she doubt in that moment or is she just like being human? Both. So it's okay to doubt. Marv, it's okay to doubt, right? We do it every day. We do it every day. Yeah, right. Is there a line between doubting and losing faith? Or is it all the same? Huh, I'm going to take you down that path now. Yeah, what do you think? Can a person... Doubt, we come back to our senses. Yeah, yeah. See, if you stay in your doubt, which a lot of people today are doing... You know, look around the world and they go, oh boy, there must be no God. So I doubt there's a God. Doubt, 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 doubt. And then I conclude there's no God. So I reject God on the basis of what I see. Okay. So we doubt, but then we come back, we come back, we come back, we come back. And that's what the Bible calls repentance. So we just repent, come back to faith, trust in Him. And I think on some level we can say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to work this out. I don't know how you're going to do this. Uh, you know, the world is a mess, and I'm contributing to it. And so it's just kind of like, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to do this. But maybe use me, us, we say that, use me to uh, be part of that. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? We'll come back to that. I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. <laughs> well, you're right at the door of the tent. Everybody heard you laugh. I mean, come on. It doesn't suggest that she just kind of went <laughs> like that, wasn't like that. But then he said, yeah, you did laugh. So God kind of calls her out, right? A little bit. You did laugh. And it's okay to admit that. You know, have you ever done something that you were embarrassed about and then you thought, oh, Christians don't do that? You ever done that? Yeah, sure. And so then when somebody says, I can't believe you did that, right? You go, I didn't do that, right? Well, let's look at that verse in there, verse 4. It's so great. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's, that is the thing that we have to deal with every single day in our lives as believers. Because we deal with stuff in life and we look at it and we go, oh, I just, there's just no way this can turn out good. This is wreckage, right? Or this is so traumatic that there is no possible way there can be any kind of good ending. And we all know what that is because each of us in our own ways has dealt with that and faced it, or we know somebody that has. There's nobody is an exception to that. And so when that happens, what do we do? What do we turn to? And so there's some wonderful scriptures that sort of back this up because what's implied 
in that question, is anything too hard for the Lord? What's implied is the answer is no. How in the world could anything be too hard for the creator of the world? Now, if you don't believe he's a creator, well, then you've created some problems for yourself, right? Because now you got, you got nothing that you can lean on, nothing that you can stand on other than your own strength or hoping that somebody in the world will be nice to you. Well, good luck. So there's some verses here that I found that really reinforce this idea that the answer being, no, nothing is too hard for the Lord. It's too hard for me, but it's not too hard for the Lord. Luke 1.37 is uh, in reference to, um, you know, the angel had come to Elizabeth and, and said, you know, you're going to have a son, and then later on Mary, okay? So what is it that uh, it, the verse says? For no word from God will ever fail. Do you believe that? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his great power that is at work in us. How many of you have, um, how many of you imagine stuff? Are you pretty good imaginers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was reading this uh, article one time about the, the benefits of daydreaming. So I've been practicing that ever since I read that. I'm really good and good at it. I mean, I can check out in the middle of somebody talking to me like just like that. It's awesome. You know, pastorally, it really comes into play. And when I'm counseling with somebody, that is the, that's the best moment of all, Okay. Yeah, but see what what do you what what what's happening when you daydream? What's happening? What's your brain doing? Yeah, it it goes into a creative mode, doesn't it? It's you know, and most people when they imagine stuff, they're not being realistic. Have you noticed that? It's like there's no boundaries. There's just like there's no time. There's no anything. It's just let. In fact. Um, it's very popular today where people are saying we need to reimagine the world. I mean, that's a little frightening, some of the ideas that they have about that. Okay? But this is this idea of no, there, we're not going to put any boundaries on that. And what he's saying here is, what did he say? How did he say it again? Who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Wow. And then Philippians 4 13. I can do all things through him who what? Gives me strength. You think you can't. And a lot of people think they can't, and then they sort of resign themselves to they can't. But that's not what Paul says. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's go to the back page. So when the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, which that's where they were going anyway, and stopped off, right? And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, this is very intriguing here. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will do what? Direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So why was Abraham chosen? 
For what purpose? See, was it, oh, so that Abraham can be better than everybody else, so that Abraham's chosen and nobody else is? No. What's the purpose? To direct his children, i.e. to teach and model and guide and lead and all that kind of stuff, right? And his household after him, which would include everybody, not just the kids, right? To do what? To keep the way of the Lord. By what? Not just by do as I say, not as I do, right? By doing, by doing what is right and being just. Notice the word fair in there. But Sarah is listening. <laughs> no, Sarah's not. So what does that say? How is Sarah going to get the news as to why we were chosen? The father would have to do that, right? So it does kind of imply that husbands and dads have a spiritual responsibility in the family. That's not a guilt thing. And it's not just, oh, that was their culture, okay? But it sort of implies that, that there is some greater responsibility that we as husbands and fathers and dads that we have that goes beyond provide and protect. You know, provide, make a living, you know, have support for your family, all those kinds of things is critical, right? It is. Protect. Somebody breaks in, you're going to take them out, Right? But there's also a spiritual part to this, and that's also what we see here. So uh, what do you make of that where God's kind of mulling this over? Do I really want to tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Well, we're going to see what happens next week, because that's when Abraham and God get into this negotiation, which I absolutely love that part. You know, 50, 10, whatever, you know, and I can just see if they're going back and forth, you know. And so anyway, that'll be a great moment. And then we're going to see. So what I want you to do is think about, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah is on people's minds these days. Because a lot of people are looking at it going, well, that's America, right? When's the big volcano going to hit America? But here's what I want you to think about. It's going to require you to do a little digging. What's the difference between Sodom and Gomorrah? And Nineveh, because Nineveh was known for some of the same stuff going on in Sodom. What's the difference? So I'm going to leave you with that dangling in the wind, as I love to do. Okay, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the way that your word speaks to us. Lord, we confess to you that very often in life, we kind of let all the voices of the world fill our brains. We're listening to stuff, and we're watching stuff, and we're thinking about stuff, and we're talking about stuff. But so much of it doesn't really include you. Your Word just speaks truth to us, and it speaks to us at that soul level where hope lies, and where faith and where love resides. And Lord, God knows we need more of that in our world today, and that you have charged us with the responsibility to direct the generations that come after us in your ways, just as Abraham was chosen to do that with his family. So help us, Lord, do that. Help us be livers of the faith, not just simply speakers of the faith. And then as we do that, watch over us, protect us, and keep us close to you. Until we're together again next week, we pray these things in Jesus' name.